Well, of all the reasons that I've heard for why someone rejects the Christian faith, one that I hear a lot is that Christianity is mostly concerned with rule following. I've heard people say that that they don't don't follow the Christian faith, they don't read the Bible because it's just a, a bunch of rules written thousands of years ago. And a lot of this comes from people who grew up with overbearing parents or or bosses that never seem pleased with one's job performance. So many people just don't want to have to go somewhere else where they have to follow rules. And reading through the Old Testament, you see a, a lot of rules, don't you? Leviticus 19 prohibits mixing linen with wool to make fabric. Leviticus, uh, excuse me, in Exodus, we see that, that one should not boil a baby in its mother's milk. A baby goat, not a baby person. That came out wrong. <laughs> Don't ever boil a baby in anything. <laughs> Don't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Let me back up. The Old Testament, we also see pro- prohibitions about eating shellfish. And if you talk to people who are not Christians, you will hear these objections to the faith. I hear them often. What do you say? On the surface, these standards, and and, and there are standards in Scripture that we have to follow, just seem like a set of rules, like every other religion has. Don't do this. You're allowed to do this. And it narrows what our behavior is allowed. And no one wants that. We have rules everywhere else we go. We're, we're told how fast we can drive. We're, we're told what, what kind of car emissions that we can have. We're told where, uh, what schools we have to send our kids to. We're told at work what we have to do there every single day. We don't want another set of rules. I get that. I understand that. And I'm not going to go through each one of these verses. There are explanations to all of those Old Testament rules that seem archaic or strange to us. But they are examples of what I've heard from people, and maybe you have too. Why are you not a believer? Why don't you follow the Lord? These seem strange to me. So how do you respond? Maybe you feel the urge to apologize. Maybe you don't even know what to say, so you avoid all interactions with people, and that's what I've heard from people too, is I just don't know what to say when people come at me with these arguments, so I just don't ever talk to them about Jesus. You may even give up reading your Bible because it seems like there are so many contradictions and strange laws and rules that God has given to us or given to his people for that time and purpose. And so you just give up on the faith altogether. Now that's one extreme. No one wants to promote or defend the indefensible. But the other extreme is to live as if these passages don't exist. Focus on the positives of the faith. Talk about relationship over religion. And see, this is tempting from a pastor's perspective, right? If I didn't preach verse by verse through the Bible, I could avoid these things. I could avoid those strange passages and just talk about the ones that I'm comfortable with, the ones that I know, the ones that won't offend anybody. But when we take a book of the Bible and we begin in verse 1 and we go through to the end of the book, you can't avoid some of these things. Well, this morning we're going to talk about one of those things that seems to trip a lot of people up. In our culture, one of the quickest ways to get people running to the door is talk about gender roles. And the reality is, gender roles are kind of going away because gender is kind of going away, isn't it? 
That it doesn't matter what you, what, what you look like or, or what your DNA says, it's, it's how you feel, right? And so these ideas of gender and gender roles are slowly going away as well. But when you talk in the Bible and you bring up these verses and it says, whoa, women must be silent, what do we do with that? We talk about it. We wrestle with it. We understand that these words are, are strange to our ears because we're, we're advanced people. But are we? Or is this just another archaic rule that the Bible has that we have to follow? This passage, 1 Corinthians, is a New Testament book. It's written after Jesus. It's not an Old Testament book. It's not written to only Jews. It's not written to people who are still under the law. This is written to a local church with people like us, young and old, men, women, this is a book that's written to a local church for their edification, for their building up to, to grow them spiritually. But some recoil when they hear this, and I understand that. I do. So the argument that standards or rules given in this passage were part of some patriarchal system just doesn't fly. It's not true. So what do we do with this passage? Remember that Paul was writing to a church in chaos. For 14 chapters already, we've read and we've studied a, a church that we would not want to switch places with. And, and we can talk about all of, our, all of our things, and every church can, all of the bad things that, that, that go to define us as a church. Every single church has those. But I can guarantee you none of us would want to switch places with the church in Corinth. This was a really, really messed up church. And so Paul is writing to correct some behaviors that he's heard and that he's seen that are just not okay to, to do in the gathered assembly. He, he talks about a lot about tongues and prophecy, but the, the reason wasn't just to give merely theological precepts, although he does that. Their lives as individuals, their lives as a church, were not orderly. They were messy. There was no structure, there was no system to protect them. And so each person did what was right in their own eyes. They weren't a church that was very welcoming to outsiders. Because you can imagine what we, what we read last week. People coming in and giving all sorts of tongues and prophecies with no order and no regulation. And someone from off the street comes in and hears this. They're running for the exits as fast as they can. They were a congregation that divided over secondary and third-level issues. It was an unhealthy church, but it was still a church. And Paul still had hope for them. Paul hoped that they would grow in their maturity so that the things dealt with in here would be, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense now. So the difficulty, we've already addressed some of the tongues and prophecy stuff. The trouble for us today is not so much that. The trouble is when Paul tells women he, they must be silent in the church. And the difficulty for us reading any passage written to a New Testament church is whether or not the command or recommendation was given to that church for a specific instance or it was given to every church for all time. People who hold that the Bible is God's word can land on different sides of application and interpretation. So people tell me often, I just read the Bible and that's all that I say. Whatever the Bible says, I do. And I say, okay, by whose standard then? 
Because we all can sit here and we can fill out political forms, political ideology forms, and we would all have the same idea going in, but we can come to different conclusions on some things. And same thing in reading scripture, that Christians can read the same passage, hold the Bible up as God's word, and still come to a different conclusion. And that happens a lot. And this is one of those passages that happens a lot. So whose application, whose interpretation and I hope that it helps you uh, to work through some of these questions this morning. And as important as learning these things may have, have, you may have missed these before, I want you to see the overall theme of Paul's message. And it's really found in verses 26 and 40. These are kind of the, the bookends for what he's saying here. Look at verse 26 first. Paul says this. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. So that's kind of the first bookend of this passage that Paul is writing. And it makes sense, doesn't it? That if you've been here through our study in 1 Corinthians, it, this makes sense that Paul is saying, build up the church, build up the church, build up the church. Forget who your favorite teacher is. Forget the gifts that you may have. Yes, you need to use them, but that's not the primary aim of why you gather. Why you gather is so that you can build up the church. Your personal preferences, what you think should happen, what you want to happen doesn't matter if it's not building up other believers. This is Paul's writing. This is the theme of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Build up the church. It's to encourage Christians to act like Christians. This is another reason why, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of people have given up on church Maybe not the faith, but the church, because they see hypocrisy. And I've always said to people who say the church is full of hypocrites, I say there's room for another one. Come on. Because we are, aren't we? We all proclaim a message that we don't perfectly live out. We can't. But we look to the one who does. So where do we start how do we build up the church? By basing everything that we do on the concept that this is our purpose of gathering together, to glorify God by the building up of the believers. This is foundational for what I hope that we do. We aim to glorify God through building up his church, and so how does that happen? Paul says this, when you come together, there are many instances in scripture where we see when you come together. Talks about communion, when you come together. Talks about our worship, when you come together. It assumes that we will come together. Turn to Acts 2. We're going to flip over there just for a few minutes. This is the earliest church, a fellowship of Christians that, that were founded immediately after um, the moving of the Spirit in the hearts of 3,000 people. When Peter preached and 3,000 or more came to know Christ through the, the preaching of the gospel. And the church was created. Look at the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, 
praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Did you notice in verse 46 that these young believers, these baby Christians, these new believers met day by day and attended the temple together? Did you see that they met each other in their homes every single day and they ate together and they had fellowship together? Applying this to our lives, one hour a week is not going to cut it. One hour a week of seeing each other and being around each other is not enough. If that's all that we have, we are malnourished. The early church gives us the, the example of how we're supposed to interact with one another. And it may not be daily, but it ought to be regularly. So we're to meet together often. I'm not going to be legalistic and say this is the number we have to meet, but often, however that is defined. So the next question is, well, what do we do when we meet? Paul writes that each one of us has a gift to offer, and Paul says in this, this list in our passage today, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, whatever your gift may be, God gave you that gift so that you could give it away. You may be wealthy. God's given you that. This is not a political statement, but listen, you may have earned it, but you really didn't. The, what you have is purely a gift from God. Your gifts, your family, your church, your friends, your wealth, your status, all of that has been given to you so that you can be an influence and bring other people to know the glory of God through your life. For the building up of the church. We do not gather to be entertained. We come together so that we can be edified and encouraged and equipped but you see how the basis for the local church, this idea that Paul has laid out in 1 Corinthians, you can see how this could cause a problem. And we know that because it causes problems today for us. The primary purpose of the gathering of the saints is to glorify God by worshiping him. It's a simple purpose. But there are standards. You can call them rules if you like. And no matter what we uh, view of, of what Paul is saying here, the Christian faith does have standards that we must follow. If you are a Christian and you say, well, there are really no standards that I have to follow, then you're probably not a believer. God has given us standards to glorify him better, but also to protect us and to encourage us to grow and to build us up, as Paul says, to build up the church. You say, well, I don't believe that. You're here today, aren't you? Don't forsake the assembling of the saints. You're doing a good job of that today, not doing that. The church has given us elders and, and deacons and, and teachers and preachers and evangelists to do the work of the ministry. And so we do that. So there are standards, there are rules that we must follow. And the first one he gives in this passage is found in verses 27 and 28. It's the gift of tongues. Paul writes this. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, or let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So Paul says that there should be at most two or three people who are 
speaking in tongues during a worship gathering, and there must be someone to interpret those tongues. If this is the case, Paul says the church will be blessed by it. But it must be regulated. What do you think would happen, even in a church like ours, is if we had microphones on each side and in the middle, and we just said, hey, whenever someone's preaching, just come on up and talk. Anybody else from the church can come up and talk. Some of you may want to, but we allow you to. Come on up and speak during the middle of the service. What do you think would happen? It'd be chaos. People would come to the mic at the same time and start yelling at each other and yelling over one another. And whoever is the last, it's like, a, you know, at the press conference for the president. You ever seen that when the, when the press secretary comes out and all the, the press reporters start screaming at the same time and it's always the loudest one who goes the longest, the one who doesn't have to breathe between words? They get the question. That would, what, what would happen in church. It's chaos. There's no order to it. And so Paul says this, he says that there must be order, only two or at most three people could speak in tongues, and there has to be someone there to interpret. Why? Because if there's no one to interpret, the church is not built up. Someone's just up there babbling on and on, and no one can understand what they're saying. That doesn't do anything for the people. So the rules that Paul puts on this is that there must be someone to interpret. In other words, don't make too much of this gift. And he moves to prophecy in verses 29 and 33. Verse 29 says this, Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh in on what is said. Again, Paul says that there should only be two or three prophets speaking in the church. Prophecy like tongues is helpful for the congregation, but it must be regulated. But did you notice what Paul says after saying that just two or three prophets? He says this, Let the others weigh what is said. The church must judge if what someone says is true or not. Specifically the leadership, but the church as a whole. We are congregational, meaning that the church is the ultimate and final authority. Scripture is the ultimate and final authority. But but in our body, how we respond to one another, the church, what the church says is what the church does. This is our responsibility. So we are to judge when someone speaks whether or not they are speaking correctly. And we see this in Galatians chapter 1. Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some of you, uh, some who are trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen to this, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If there was one verse in the Bible that I would put on this side of the pulpit, this is what I would put. I'd put on this side, sir, let them see Jesus. But on this side, I would say, if anyone preaches a gospel contrary to the one you see in Scripture, let him be accursed, meaning hand him over to the devil. How then is prophecy judged? We must compare what's being said to what we know in the Bible. God has given us his word to be our benchmark, to be our structure, our foundation for everything that we believe. It must be found in scripture or we do not believe it. The Bible is our standard for truth. And anyone who preaches against God's word 
or preaches against the gospel found in God's word is to be ignored and removed. The next command that Paul gives the Corinthians is that all of this must be done in turn. All of this prophecy in tongues, he says this, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. It all must be done in an orderly manner. To be honest, these statements are, are less concerned about the theological propositions of tongues and prophecy and almost entirely focused on order in the worship. In verse 33, Paul says that God is not a God of confusion but of peace. So if we had no structure, if we had no order, if what we did every Sunday wasn't really planned out, if we just did what we wanted to do, we would be going against what Paul is saying here. We would not be orderly. And we would mis be misrepresenting God because God is a God of order. God is a God not of order or not of disorder, but of order and of peace. To put it another way, the way we worship matters to God. So we've seen rules for tongues and prophecy. And in the last part of this passage, the one that people are waiting for, Paul addresses rules for women in the assembly. Now, a big debate that's happened in my lifetime, and, and probably before, but it's, it's gotten bigger in church culture and evangelical culture and theological culture is the roles of men and women in the church. Maybe you're blessed and you've just been part of a Baptist church your whole life and you've been in here, some of you have been here your whole life, and you've just never had to deal with this. Um, I've told people ignorance is bliss in a lot of ways, so the more that you learn about stuff, the more frustrated you get about other things. So sometimes just being ignorant on some things is not such a bad thing to be. But I'm going to share with you two terms that you may have heard, may not, or maybe not in this context. On this issue, there are two sides to this, and there's things in the middle, but the two opposing sides are what we call egalitarian and complementarian. Egalitarian comes from the French word for equality. And so egalitarian really means that men and women can do the same thing in the church. So pastors, elders, deacons, preachers, teachers, there are, there are no gender distinctions. And they use passages, and, and I understand this, these are difficult things to deal with, but they use passages as uh, there are, there's no Greek or Hebrew, there's no male or female, and they say, well, there's no distinction in the church, gender distinction. On the other side, you find what's called the complementarian view, and again, it's exactly what it means, complementary, that the gender roles are different and distinct, but they complement one another. Here, a Christian believes that, and both, you find Christians in both sides, by the way. Here, someone believes that God created order in the home and in the church, and that order is laid out for us in Scripture. Both sides to this believe that they're being true to the Bible. Now I share this because it's just like politics, there are many viewpoints that are not exactly on the extremes, but somewhere in the middle. And I could give you those if you want to, I, I can give you stumpers that I've had to deal with over the years that, um, that are difficult, because they're not clean, they're not on one side or the other. Now I'm gonna show you that this passage is used in the debate talking about gender roles, but it shouldn't be. First Timothy 2 is a better passage to go to when we're talking about pastors and, and women and men in the church and what the roles are. 
But there are some things happening in this passage first. In verse 34, Paul says, As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in church. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. I'll be honest with you, this is, I'm not proud of this. Um, I used to use this verse, and so when, when I was sitting in my college ministry and we would sit in church, some of the girls would talk, or ladies would talk to one another, and I would open up my Bible and I would just look at them and just do this. Um, that's, that's not appropriate, don't be like me. Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians 11 that women can prophesy and pray in the gathering. So we, we know that, that and, and we do it here too. We have women who read scripture before the service or before the preaching, and that's wonderful. There's no prohibition in scripture for that. It says that they can do it publicly, so what then does Paul mean? Because then that doesn't, it's not an absolute be silent. Like the second that you step across the threshold into the church building, women, you better be quiet. That's not what Paul's saying. Not at all. So I think there's three main views that help to make sense of this, and you can figure out where you land on this. But there are three main views. The first one is that Paul may prohibit women from judging prophecy. Just a few verses earlier, Paul talks about how the church and the leadership must judge what someone has said to see if it lines up with Scripture, God's Word. This view makes sense of other passages because Paul in other areas limits the role of pastor-elder, means the same thing, but limits the role of pastor-elder to men. And so Paul's saying that those are the ones that, that need to judge what's being said. And if those are reserved for men, then women on the judging part, step, step off, step aside. A second option is that the women would sit apart from the men in gathering. Now, this is not definite. There's no way to know this for certain. But in certain cultures today still, if you go to a, a mosque and you watch uh, Muslims worship, the men go to a separate part of the building than the women do. They are separate and distinct. Now, this is not a guarantee that this happened in the church in Corinth, but it could have. So one argument, the second argument, is that the men would sit over here and the women would sit over here and whoever is teaching says something and the, the wife doesn't understand it fully so she yells across the room, hey, hey, what, what does he mean by that? Which would be disruptive, wouldn't it? And so that, that's one option and Paul is saying it's better just to be quiet, write your questions down, put them on your phone, whatever it may be, but ask your husband after the service if you're married. A third possibility is that wives were asking questions to their husband as they were sitting next to each other during worship and disrupting the service. Some people have said that women may not have had the access to education, but we know that Paul learned from women. And we know that there were instrumental women in the life of the church since the very beginning. And in fact, that it's true that, that there are women in this church, and I, I can name them off the top, that, that men have learned from, including me. There are many women in my life who've spoken truth to me, who've encouraged me, who've said things that, oh, I didn't understand it that way. And it's been helpful. But maybe they were doing it in the middle of service to a point where you have so many people talking at one time where you can't hear what the preacher or the teacher is saying. This would have been seen as shameful to their husbands. In this culture, in the early church culture, gender roles were very distinct and different. And so it would have been shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So whatever your view on this may be, there were women in the Corinthian church who were disrupting worship. That's clear. There were also men who were disrupting worship. But here specifically is Paul is addressing the ladies in the service. And women had a right to speak in the service. But it had to be done orderly. 
speaking out of turn or without the culturally appropriate view of her husband was shameful to a woman. And if it's shameful in the marriage relationship, which is a picture of Jesus and his church, that relationship between a husband and wife is bigger than just two people who fall in love and marry each other. If you're married, your marriage is a picture of Jesus and his bride, us. And so when, when that gets distorted, so does the gospel. And so Paul is saying that if you're causing shame to your husband, it distorts the truth of the gospel to the people who don't know Christ. So whatever your view on this may be, there were problems in the worship. It was disrupting the worship. Again, Paul is focusing on proper behavior in the gathered assembly. And he anticipates that people will not be all in line with what he's saying. Some will question him. I've heard and read accounts of, of Christians who say, you know what, we, just, we don't agree with everything Paul writes. And we follow Jesus. We, we love Jesus, but Paul, I'm not so sure about Paul. Well, Christian, that's a rejection of the entire Bible. The black letters in your Bible are equally from God as the red letters. There is not one word in this Bible that is more important than another because they are all from the word of God, from the mouth of God. They're God-breathed. God is saying these words. God is inspiring these writers to write in their personality, but what they're writing down is directly from God through the power of the Spirit. So you, we can't create separate Bibles here. We can't do the Thomas Jefferson thing where we cut out the things we don't like and keep the things that we like in there. Every word is important. So Paul is saying this, and he anticipates this question arising. And so in verses 36 through 38, he, he's saying that what he's writing is not him. It's from God. He says this. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that these, the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, if you don't pay attention to the words that Paul is writing here, you're ignorant of what God wants. That's what he's telling the church. He's saying, I'm a prophet or I'm a pastor. I'm a guy who's writing these words, but they're really not for me. Yeah, I put my name on it. But these words are from God. As if the Lord is somehow in our, he is in our midst, but it's, it's as if we saw him standing here and speaking like he did to, to Moses. That's what the Bible is to us. His words are authoritative because they are from God. So then Paul moves to some final thoughts in verses 39 and 40. He writes this. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Earnestly desire to prophesy and speak in tongues. Meaning that it's better for you to be a blessing to someone else than to keep the blessing for your, your own self. God has given you gifts so that you can give them away. But I want you to focus on verse 26 and verse 40 for a second. Because these are the bookends of this thought that Paul is writing. Do you see how they connect together? Verse 26. Let all things be done for the building up. Verse 40, but all things should be done decently and order. So you wonder, how do you build up? You worship decently and orderly. That's how you build each other up. 
again, in our context, if we had microphones or even if we didn't have microphones and people just stood up and started yelling at one another, that's not decently and in order and no one is getting built up in that. This church probably has had and I've been part of business meetings that are kind of like that. You have people shouting across the aisle. You have people leaving because they're upset. You've got people who get angry with one another. That's not decently, and that's not done with order, right? And now imagine if that happened on a Sunday morning, and someone who's not part of our church walks in here and sees that happening. They're never coming back, right? Paul says that we do things decently and orderly so that the church may be built up, so that people may be taught, people may be trained. Why? Because God is orderly. We see that in the beginning of Genesis and moving throughout the entire Bible. We see God's perfect and sovereign plan working out exactly how he designed it. Everything has a purpose for existing. There is order in how God made everything. Listen, and you say, well, wait a minute. Sin, how does God do that? Listen, sin will one day be conquered. Sin will one day be destroyed. Sin will one day be erased. There will be no more sin. Why? Because Jesus is returning. So God glorifies himself through the incarnation of Jesus and through the return of Jesus so even in sin God is glorified because Jesus is bigger than sin and so all of the the Bible from Genesis all the way on is is God ordering things together and making things created with purpose and with a plan personally I don't know a whole lot about soccer but I was helping out with my neighbor on my son's soccer team for the last two seasons And you may not like soccer, but if you watch it and if you pay attention to it enough, you'll see that soccer, and it's been called the beautiful game, again, some of you may disagree, but soccer, which all the world calls football, but I'll I'll humor you, soccer, when it's done properly, when players are playing with skill, it is an amazing thing to watch because players are moving in tandem. Perfect passes in between the defenders. They're moving and, and going together. And, and if there's a goal score, you almost have to remind yourself of the previous five minutes because one thing that happened five minutes before led to this, to this, to this, to this, to this goal being scored. So when soccer is played well, it's beautiful. On the other hand, with 10 to 12-year-olds, it's not always that way. Um, there were many moments, probably more than the beautiful moments, but there were many moments where When I was on the sidelines watching, it looked like those videos where a a goose starts chasing after like little kids who get too close. You ever seen that? And they're just running around in circles and and the goose is chasing and people don't know what to do. That's kind of what the soccer was for a lot of the time for 10 and 12 year olds. But this past season, we had a game. It was the two top teams, us and another team. And we were playing against these guys and we knew they would be tough. They beat us the previous year a couple times and we're coming in and we're saying "We we can beat these guys. And the referees for, for the league that we were in um, are generally high school kids. Um, barely able to drive, but they're, they're high school kids. They're doing their best. And, and if, if you've ever been a referee, you know that it's pretty difficult to blow the whistle. It's, it's a hard thing to, to get over the hurdle. You may know all the rules, but you kind of have to be a brave person to get up there and blow a whistle knowing that you're going to have people upset with you, right? I tried it once, and I said, I can't do this. And so I think that these, these referees were just afraid to blow the whistle. One was playing on TikTok the whole game. But the, the other referee who was watching the game was afraid to blow the whistle. And you know what happens when the referees don't control the game? The kids keep amping up the intensity. And, and so that's exactly what happened. I mean, elbows were flying. Our goalkeeper got kicked in the face and no whistle blown. 
My son, um, it was like watching WWE. My son got the, somebody grabbed his arm and flipped him over, and my son got called for the foul. It was just complete chaos happened. It was an ugly, ugly game. And it didn't resemble soccer at all. It resembled a fight, a wrestling match. It was not beautiful. There was a contest to see who would be left standing after all the other kids are off the field injured. See, without a standard, without the referees enforcing the standard that's created by the rule book, without them doing that, our kids were just running around kicking a ball. Strategy got tossed out. We were just trying to be tough and trying to withstand the, the blows that our kids were facing. Strategy gets ignored when you're afraid of getting smashed in the head by your opponent. The officials are there to ensure that soccer is played the way that it ought to be played. Now, bring this back to our spiritual existence and our lives. God has given us the standard. Rules to live by and rules for worship. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable, consider this. That God has made everything. God created everything out of nothing. That nothing was there except, except whatever was God, right? There was, there was nothing. That the universe did not even exist. And God made it exist. God created everything. He, he created the universe with a word and he holds it in the palm of his hands. And in this creation, he created humanity. He didn't do it because he was lonely. He didn't do it because he needed us. No, he created us because doing so would bring him glory. And what is that glory? It's the craziest thing. Even our sin causes glory for God because sin is going to be conquered by Jesus. So God's glory shines the brightest in the God-man, Jesus. Now, as the creator, isn't it understandable that he would be the one that gets to make up the rules? God is the one who created everything, so he makes the standard. If you've ever created something, a work of art, it's yours. If you created a painting and you spent months and months painting this, and I come over to your house and I grab a knife and I just cut through the painting, that's not okay. I have no right to do that. But if you as the artist decided, I don't like this anymore or I like it better when it's in pieces, and you cut it up, you are perfectly okay to do that. So God created everything, so it makes sense that he gets to create the rules for, for, for what we are to do. He gets to do whatever he wants with his creation, and God has decided to let us be part of that story. But at its core, at the core of what sin is, sin is defiance against that. Sin is when we say, I'm the one who gets to make up the rules. I'm the one who creates the standard. It's my choice, my freedom. I get to do what I want. Every sin can be traced back to this attitude, that it's me. I am now the God, lowercase g, God of everything, of my life. I'm sovereign over my own existence. Isn't that what, what we hear? The stuff that you see on the news, the stuff that you hear, isn't that what makes you mad? The fact that you can do and be and think and, and, and act in any way that you want. Why? Because you are the center of the universe. It doesn't matter who you hurt. It doesn't matter what happens to other people. Do whatever makes you feel good, right? This is us saying that we are God and God is not. But we're not sovereign, are we? 
If you're not a Christian, you may do all that you can to deny that God uh, has done this, but he has made it plain to you because you see how small you are in comparison to everything else God has created. There is no possible way that you are sovereign over your own existence. So who is sovereign? Who is the king? Not you, not me. The only one who is sovereign is God. So if God is the creator, then he has the authority and the right to tell us what to do. He tells us how we can find salvation, and he tells us how to live and how to worship. And God demands order from his creation. If we claim to follow God in our worship when we gather here on Sunday is disorderly, we're not living how God commanded. That's sin because we've decided what we want to do is more important than what God says to do. We cannot do anything in our worship that God has not commanded. Put another way, we must do whatever he commands. When we gather, the word must be read, the word must be preached and sung and prayed, and the ordinances are to be administered. There is no room in the Bible for much else, is there? What Paul is saying in this is how we worship matters. It's not a matter of personal preference. How we worship reflects our understanding of God. If our worship is unruly or is not planned where people are shouting at one another, or people are speaking in languages that no one can understand, and people are giving words from the Lord that may or may not be from the Lord. That doesn't honor God. It dishonors him, and it does a disservice to us. Christian, I want to leave you with this challenge to examine your heart when you come into worship. And, and, and this is not pointed at anybody. This is not a, a reference to a specific situation, so please don't read into this any more than what I'm saying here. When we come to gather for worship, we are entering not just the building, but we are entering into a serious situation. That God has given us commands and instructions for how he wants to be worshipped. And our duty is to obey those. So when we gather, we, everything that we do is done so that we can bring God glory through our obedience and through our praises. And so as a church, before we enter these doors, before we even leave our home, as we're getting ready in the morning, and even the night before, as a church, we need to pray to say, God, are we doing everything we can to glorify you? Because it matters. Everything that we do on a Sunday morning, everything that we do when we gather together, it matters to God, and therefore it must matter to us. Church, I challenge us to, to examine God's word, to see if this is what God says. Examine it. Weigh this. Weigh what I'm, being, what I'm teaching against what the Bible says clearly. Would you pray with me?